Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler, Katrina Stewart and Will Hamilton. And we'll begin with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Will, what do you have for us? Well, a new study has shown that a breakthrough vaccine against tuberculosis may be more effective when given alone rather than alongside other vaccines. A study by Martin Oter and colleagues on four-month-old West African infants found that a next-generation TB vaccine, known rather unspectacularly as MVA85A, is significantly less effective when given alongside other conventional vaccines. TB is a major health problem worldwide, and the existing vaccine, Bacille Clement Guerin, or BCG, named after its inventors, is not entirely effective. The rise of drug-resistant TB strains is making the need for a top-up vaccine in addition to the BCG ever more pressing. This was the aim of a team at Oxford University that created the MVA85A vaccine. They started with a strain of vaccinia virus, that's the pox virus which was used as a vaccine to immunise against and ultimately eradicate smallpox. The so-called modified vaccinia virus Ankara, or MVA, was then manipulated genetically to express a protein found on mycobacterium tuberculosis called 85A. The immune response against 85A protects against tuberculosis as it primes the immune system to target the TB-causing bacteria. The modified vaccinia virus is important because it biases the immune system towards generating killer cells that attack pathogens directly rather than using soluble molecules like antibodies. This so-called cell-mediated immunity is essential to fighting off TB effectively. Martin Oter and colleagues at Oxford had already demonstrated that MVA85A is safe and effective at boosting TB immunity in animal models, and preliminary studies on people in Africa and the UK are showing promise. In this latest study, the authors randomly divided a sample of four-month-old children from the Sakuta Health Centre in Gambia into three groups. One group received the standard selection of vaccines called the Extended Programme of Immunisation, or EPI, recommended by the World Health Organisation. This includes vaccines against hepatitis B, diphtheria, tetanus and others. The second group received the EPI plus the new TB vaccine, MVA85A. And the last group received just the MVA85A alone, without the other vaccines. The scientists then measured the amount of interferon gamma produced by the participants of the study at 4 and 20 weeks post-vaccination. Interferon gamma is a signalling molecule that pushes the immune system towards cell-mediated rather than antibody-mediated immunity, and remember that was important for combating TB. They found that MVA85A was significantly better at inducing interferon gamma and so promoting cell-mediated immunity when given alone rather than when given alongside the other vaccines. This may be because the other vaccines induce antibody responses rather than the cell-mediated immunity, and the two responses are known to inhibit one another. So the study shows firstly that this new TB vaccine is safe and could work at boosting cell-mediated immunity against TB, and secondly that public health experts may have to re-evaluate how multiple vaccines are given together to children in the developing world. And that work was published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. I assume the reason that they're given lots of vaccines at once is because they're exposed to a wide range of different potential infections. So actually delaying something could introduce its own risk. 
Yeah, and one of the main reasons why they're given at once is purely practical, just because it's very difficult to get people from remote rural communities in many of these countries in the developing world into the clinics to receive the vaccines. And so it would be much better if you could do it all in one go. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Will. And Katrina, what do you have for us? Yep, so also in the news this week, 16-month-old babies can use limited evidence to decide if they've been given a faulty toy or are just using the toy incorrectly, according to a study published this week in the journal Science. So in order to achieve our goals, we need to learn to make this important distinction between faults with ourselves and faults with our environment. For example, if a light switch doesn't work, is it because we press the wrong button or is it because the bulb is broken? So scientists from Massachusetts Institute of Technology designed some clever experiments where infants watched an adult pressing a button on a green toy to produce a sound. The baby was handed either the green toy or an otherwise identical yellow toy, neither of which worked when the baby pressed the button. The infant had to make a decision. Were they making a mistake, for example not pressing the toy hard enough, or was the toy itself broken? When they were presented with the green toy, which they'd previously seen working well, Babies tended to hand the toy to their parents once they'd failed, possibly deciding that the fault was with themselves and their parents would be more successful. But when they were given the yellow toy, babies were more likely to discard the toy and reach for another, a red one placed nearby. As the babies had no evidence that yellow toys worked at all, they were more likely to believe that the fault was with the object and have another go with a different toy. But researchers wanted to rule out alternative explanations. Could the babies be given the experimenter's toy be less likely to want a new toy? Or were they handing toys over because they thought their parents might be able to fix the toy rather than show them how to use it? So experimenters showed the babies the green toy again, but this time the babies watched as the same experiments sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed with the toy, suggesting the fault was with the toy itself. Babies picked up on this and were more likely to give up on the familiar green toy and reach for the new red one. Next, babies watched two different adults, one who consistently failed to produce the noise when they pressed the green toy and one who always succeeded. After this, babies tended to hand the toy over to their parents, suggesting that babies were more aware that there was a knack to it and they hadn't mastered. These fascinating results show that from a very early age, babies can make evidence-based decisions about which response to failure, seeking help or exploring alone, will be most likely to lead to future success. They understand the important distinction between faults with themselves or the world around them. Is there a bit of a risk with this sort of experiment, similar to that we see with when doing animal behaviour experiments, that we're actually imposing our own judgement on what they're doing. And it's very, very hard to say exactly why a baby does something, just like it would be hard to say why a bird does something or why a monkey does something. There certainly is that risk, yes. And all you can really tell from this study is that there was definitely a significant difference in the decisions that the babies made according to how the experimenters um, reacted and what toys they were given. It would be very interesting. And I'm sure there are lots of new parents around who would love to know exactly what their babies are thinking. Thank you very much, Katrina. Also in the news this week, a new analysis of the way that pigeons flock suggests that it actually costs them energy to do so. It's actually more efficient for them to fly on their own. To find out what this could tell us about bird behaviour, I spoke to Dr Jim Usherwood from the Royal Veterinary College. Birds fly around in flocks quite a lot. That's something we know about birds. They like to be together. The question's been there for a while. What are they getting from it? Because they, they could easily not fly around in flocks. And in the background of bird worlds, we, we, we think of lots of relatively large birds flying around in Vs. Things like pelicans and geese fly around in nice, nicely ordered Vs. 
And the previous work on that has, has shown some kind of, of, of benefit from flying in a V. You, you flap at a lower rate and your heart rate goes down. And indeed, if you fly airplanes in a, a nicely ordered V, they reduce the fuel consumption. So you can fly in such a way that you save energy. Now, most birds don't fly around in well-structured Vs. Pigeons are a good example of a normal flock, termed a, a cluster flock. Why might they be flying around as a group? We simply didn't know whether they were getting any kind of aerodynamic or energetic benefit from it. So what we went about doing is putting, in effect, sat-nav on every pigeon and some inertial sensors. So, so a lot of the same kit as you get on an iPhone, but in a, a smaller and better package on, on every pigeon of a flock. Got them to fly around and then worked out that these birds are probably getting some kind of energetic cost from flying close together which leaves the biologists in us looking for why on earth would you fly in a flock? And, and we've got to look for different answers for that now. So what were the conditions under which they were flying? Could they have been flocking in response to something that they saw in the environment? So this is part of the beauty of these new sensors now. You can leave them on animals. They can uh, wake up when, when the animal's doing something. And you, you can let the animals roam free doing exactly what they would normally be doing. So these were put on, on, on my, my flock of racing pigeons. Uh, which were allowed to do whatever they wanted for, for, for three days. They're flying around sometimes at 6 o'clock in the morning when nobody was around here. They'd take off, fly around in a flock for 5, 10 minutes, tens of thousands of flaps, pulling 2G as they go around in circles, and then sitting down and having a bit more breakfast. And they're doing this quite spontaneously, very much like uh, wild rock doves would do. So yes, the, these are in free flight, but we can take the the effects of going up and accelerating and going around corners into account because we've got so many flaps. So how many pigeons were you following and how many sort of wing beats did you actually manage to capture? So we wired up up to 20. Not all 20 flew all the time. And then we're talking about a quarter of a million flaps, 400 pigeon kilometres we measured, which is just, just awesome. It's the sort of data volumes that you'd just dream of. If you were trying to do this in a wind tunnel, just imagine trying to do that. The other question, of course, is for all of these pigeons, they have a bit of technology strapped to their back that they wouldn't normally have. Is it possible that the way that you're measuring this is actually having an impact? Is that leading to the fact that they need to fly with greater energy? Anything you add to an animal is likely to influence it a bit, especially when it comes to aerodynamics. A little bump sticking up could do untold things with drag. But having said that, they were flying voluntarily and watching from the ground point of view, they're flying around in a flock like they always do. So we've got no particular reason to think they're doing something completely out of the ordinary. And then whatever the, the effect of having a logger on is presumably the same for all of them. And so I don't say it's a huge issue, but of course, there's always a push to lighter, smoother, better loggers. Why are you looking at pigeons in particular when we have other birds that have this glorious V formation or these incredible flocks of starlings that, that seem almost liquid in the air? Why pigeons? Pigeons are, are pretty useful in that they uh, represent typical uh, flocks. They also have the great advantage that they can carry a feral payload. These pigeons are uh, quite happy to fly carrying a payload of 30 grams and they come back so we're not having to bother to telemeter the information off them we can just walk up to them into the shed, in the shed afterwards, pull out an SD card and get a gigabyte of data off them. And that makes things a lot easier. And what impact did flying in a flock actually have compared to a bird just flying free on its own away from other birds? It's actually quite a large difference. 
if you think of a, a pigeon flapping along at 8 hertz, then as it gets into uh, a flock, you go up to 8.1-ish hertz. That doesn't sound much, but if you compare that with how much it changes due to flying uphill, if it's flying uphill at 4 meters a second, that, that, that's a similar kind of change in flap frequency. What advantages do you think there may be in flying in a flock? We always say there's strength in numbers, but then if that strength is counteracted by the fact that you need to put more energy into flight, then it seems that that would be something that would be selected against. Yes. So we've got a slight issue that they're they're presumably flying in order to take exercise uh, primarily here because they're not going anywhere in these flights. They're getting up from their loft, they're screaming around, they're going back for some more breakfast. So is it necessarily a bad thing that they, they flap a bit harder? And, and then the prime thing that people always think of when uh, considering flocks is some kind of protection for, from attack. And the evidence uh, for that are fairly strong in that when there's um, a sparrowhawk or something like that around, they tend to bunch in a, a much tighter flock. So there's probably some advantage of being in a tight flock in terms of being difficult to catch. Is this information only really interesting to biologists? Is it only useful for people studying birds or studying flocks? Well, of course, I'm coming at it from the biologist's end. There's more and more interest in these autonomous or unmanned air vehicles, uh, drones, and the flocks of them are becoming more and more useful now. And they're always interested in making things more efficient. If you can get a little bit more life out of your drone, then that's very useful. And this would point to not flying your drones around uh, as a flock of pigeons, but keeping in a, a goose-like structure if you can. Jim Usherwood from the Structure and Motion Lab at the Royal Veterinary College, North Mims in Hertfordshire. And you can read about that work in the journal Nature this week. But now back to more of this week's top science news. Will, what else do you have for us? Well, it's good news for hay fever sufferers like me, because by cracking the crystal structure of the histamine receptor, scientists are on the road to developing more effective antihistamine drugs to treat allergy and inflammation. Histamine is a molecule produced by special immune cells in response to certain foreign bodies and potentially dangerous pathogens. It has a variety of effects depending on which of the four types of histamine receptor it binds to, named H1 to H4. Histamine signaling, particularly through the H1 receptor, is known to play a crucial role in a variety of allergic conditions, including hay fever, asthma, food allergies, and the itchy response to insect bites. Conventional antihistamines, such as cetirizine and acrivastine, that's Benadryl once a day and Benadryl allergy relief, respectively, work by blocking the H1 receptor. Using X-ray crystallography, Tatsuro Shimamura and colleagues unraveled the molecular structure of the H1 receptor, with a resolution of 3.1 angstroms, or 0.0000031 millimetres, so that's a very fine level of detail. All four of the histamine receptors are part of a much larger family of G-protein coupled receptors, or GPCRs, which includes thousands of different proteins. Shimamura's group showed that in the first-generation antihistamine, doxepin, it interacts with a particular site in the H1 receptor that is found in most G-protein-coupled receptors. This explains why doxepin was so non-selective, and hence why it had so many side effects, including sedation, dry mouth, and heart arrhythmias, because as well as blocking the H1 receptors, it blocked many other G-protein-coupled receptors as well. In addition, duxepin could cross the blood-brain barrier and block signalling in the brain, adding to the sleepiness. Second-generation antihistamines, like cetirizine, which I already mentioned, 
have fewer side effects and are considered non-drowsy. The X-ray crystallography suggests that this improvement is due to a second interaction with a different site on the H1 receptor, in addition to the one that older antihistamines bound to. This second site is not found in other G-protein-coupled receptors, which, combined with the reduced uptake across the blood-brain barrier, helps explain their greater selectivity and reduced side effects. This detailed look at the H1 receptor and its interaction with antihistamines could help guide future drug discovery, so antihistamines used to treat allergies like hay fever may become more effective and with fewer side effects even than current medications. And that work was published this week in the journal Nature. So it's a bit like the old antihistamines were a sort of skeleton key that would fit all of these different receptors. And it's only now that we really know the structure can we design exactly the right key that will only interact with the histamine receptors. And that should enable us to block hay fever without all of these nasty, sleepy side effects. Absolutely. The old antihistamines just acted on so many different receptors and it went straight into the brain. And so it had a very blanketing effect uh, on the whole of the brain. Well, thank you very much. And speaking of sleepiness, I think this brings us through to our last news story, Katrina. Yes, this week has seen breakthroughs into the mysteries of sleep, helping us understand the ancient tradition of rocking babies to sleep and why we need our shut-eye at all. Researchers from France and Switzerland have discovered that the rocking motion found in cradles and hammocks not only lulls people to sleep more quickly than lying still, but also encourages deeper sleep. So they asked volunteers to have a 45-minute nap in their experimental hammock, which was either still or gently rocking, while an electroencephalogram, or EEG, was used to monitor the waves of activity in their brains. The study, published this week in Current Biology, found that the rocking motion helped volunteers fall asleep more quickly, with a shorter period of stage 1 or light sleep. The rocking caused more stage 2 sleep and increased the number of sleep spindles. These are important patterns of brain activity that seem to be needed to refresh our ability to learn after our sleep. So rocking helps send us to sleep and helps deepen our sleep in an afternoon nap. The next step will be to see if the same thing applies for a full night's sleep and to see if the sleep changes caused by rocking help with learning and memory consolidation. Perhaps rocking beds will soon be standard options in all furniture shops. But why do we need to fall asleep at all? So also in the news this week, fruit flies have taught us more about the role of sleeping in refreshing our minds so that they can lay down new memories. Researchers publishing in the journal Science used fruit flies that were genetically modified to fall asleep if the temperature rises above 31 degrees centigrade. Armed with this ability to induce sleep on demand, they wanted to investigate the synaptic homeostasis model, the idea that new connections between nerves are continuously formed when our animal is awake, and these are downscaled during sleep to prevent an overload of circuits. They showed that the flies in a socially enriched environment, with exposure to about 90 other flies, formed lots of new connections between their nerves, and this meant that they were unable to lay down long-term memories when researchers tried to train them to suppress their mating rituals. But flies that have been socially isolated, on the other hand, forming fewer new connections between their nerves, and later performed well on the long-term memory task. But can sleep refresh the brain and abolish the effects of the social enrichment? The researchers used temperature to allow the flies four hours of sleep after their social enrichment, and this did indeed restore the ability of the flies to form new long-term memories, supporting the idea that a period of sleep simplifies neural connections and leaves the flies better able to learn. 
So is the take-home message from this that when you've got important things to learn, maybe you've started a new job and there's lots of names and faces to remember, or maybe you've got exams coming up, the important thing to do is have a good solid nap and preferably in a hammock. <laughs> the hammock will help you to have that good solid nap and the good solid nap should clear your mind and make you more able to lay down new memories. Well, thank you very much. And if you would like to follow up on any of the stories we've covered this week, you can find more information and the references online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.